If you love how Dan Rather unravels amazing true stories, you got to check out Music's Greatest Mysteries. That podcast will really get you thinking. Welcome to Dan Rather's The Big Interview, the thought-provoking podcast with in-depth interviews with music and cultural icons only Dan Rather can deliver. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from classic rock to country and alternative. We cover it all right here on Dan Rather's The Big Interview. So sit back and enjoy these magnificent stories from the artists that lived it. Here's your host, Dan Rather. Tonight on The Big Interview, Edward Norton, an Academy Award nominated Hollywood A-lister. What is this? This is a chemical murder. From the cult classic Fight Club to the critically acclaimed American History X, Edward Norton is known for his explosive performance. From dad to that! I literally can't think of a single film or play that I've ever done that didn't expand my personal horizons in very, very rich ways. Hundreds of thousands of it. But what you may not know about Edward Norton is he's also an impassioned philanthropist and full-time environmental activist. There's no question in my mind that that, in a thousand years, will be the basis on which we're assessed as a generation. Tonight, the real Edward Norton on The Big Interview. The freedom that everyone in this room enjoys is in a very real way in your hands. Edward Norton is one of America's most masterful actors, on screen and stage. There never was an Aaron counselor. He made his Hollywood debut playing a murdering altar boy with multiple personalities in the 1996 psychological thriller Primal Fear. And his performance earned him an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor. You know, love hurts, Marty. What can I say? Two years later, he earned his second Oscar nomination, this time for Best Actor, for his intense depiction of a reformed neo-Nazi in the critically acclaimed American History X. Get out of my way! All right, all right. Get out of my way! All right, all right. Let me go! Oh, no. Every week, Tyler gave the rules that he and I decided. Gentlemen, welcome to Fight Club. And in 1999, he starred opposite Brad Pitt in the cult classic Fight Club. Is that it? Stop! Stop! When the fight was over, nothing was solved, but nothing mattered. Remember, this isn't just a search party. It's a chance to do some first-class scouting. Any to date, question? Norton has written, directed, and acted in more than 30 movies and stage productions. Hail Mary. Oh, something. But who is Edward Norton? He has deliberately kept his personal life private. Rarely will you see him in a celebrity gossip magazine. But where you will see him is out promoting the many causes he cares about. Like when he ran a marathon with Kenyans 
to raise money for a wilderness conservation trust. From helping build new parks in New York City to creating an enormously successful online fundraising site called CrowdRise, this graduate of Yale University has always been much more than a Hollywood heartthrob. Norton rarely does in-depth interviews, but he agreed to sit down with us recently in Santa Monica to talk about his life and career. Thank you very much for doing this. No pleasure. You know, in getting ready for this interview, try to do my homework, talk to people, two things I heard about you. Number one, he's a tremendous actor. Number two, he's an innovative philanthropist and activist. Now, I'm interested to know how you would describe yourself. <laughs> um, Overcommitted. Uh, um, I think I need to work on my time management. I think I, um, or, or even my, my, my own grasp of how many hours are in the day, because I feel like the last few years I, uh, I enjoy everything I'm doing, but I might have um, you know, been working under the delusion that you can do too many things within one day. And um, it, it's almost gotten to the point of, um, I feel like I'm leading dual existences and, and uh, I have to figure out how to, how to simplify a little bit. The creative side of your life, you have great fun making movies, being in a theater. What's the most fun about it? When I was young, I really like, I really like uh, resisted the notion that I had to choose a path. I, I really, um, you know, I wanted to be a, a pilot. I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to work for the State Department. I, I had I had like all kinds of or notions. Or maybe an Indian chief. Yeah, no, I mean I had all <laughs> kinds of notions about things I wanted to do. And I really like, you know, maybe arrogantly, I really thought like, you know, I was capable of doing a lot of different things. And in a weird way, acting, to me it always seemed like this, um, it was like having a hall pass in high school, you know, it was like everyone else has to be in class. And you've got this past that lets you roam. You know, I, I thought what I like about making films, telling stories, really, ultimately telling stories, is that it was this perpetual past to go investigate various worlds. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure you can relate to that somewhat because reporting, reporting on stories, you know, it's, it's like having it be your job to move freely in the world, kind of on your own schedule, kind of following your own interests and investigate these realms of experience, and in our case, you know, make up stories around them and then represent them or kind of think of themes and represent them. Um, well, I certainly take a lot of joy out of what I do. Yeah. I practice the journalism of joy. In my own work, and I'm, I'm raising this to see whether there's a, some companion to it in your own, you have fun with it. You have great joy with it. You take great satisfaction in it. But also, for me, at least, it's kind of a constant graduate school. I'm learning all that. A hundred percent. That's what I mean. Is I, everyone, I've never worked on a film that wasn't the equivalent of, of going back to school, you know, on some level. I, I literally can't think of a single film or play that I've ever done that didn't expand my personal horizons uh, in, in very, very rich ways. And I love it. It's a... Um, in addition to the fact that it, it, I meet new people every time, I work with I work with completely fascinating people, um, both both other artists and then also sometimes the the people who are guiding you into the world that you're going to represent, be that poker players or CIA agents or you know New York cops or or attorneys. You know, it it 
it's a it's an incredible um, privilege to get to go around and and investigate these different worlds of experience. Well, as you talk, the thought occurs to me to ask this question, and I hope you'll forgive it if you must. That when I first became anchor and managing editor at the CBS Evening News, succeeding the rightfully iconic Walter Cronkite, right. to reach a point where I even I realized that I was becoming um, self-centered, big-headed, if you will. Now, with the movies, everybody's telling you, listen, you're the, the new great actor, and you're the future great actor, and you have one success after the other. Has that happened to you? If it hasn't, how did you guard against it? Let's talk about it. Yeah, it's, um, I think, I think uh, acting specifically, not, not necessarily so much directing or writing or things like that, but acting, no matter how perceptive you are, no matter how many times you watch, um, you know, you, you try to model yourself on Bob Dylan or, or any of the other great resistors of, of fame, um, at the end of the day, inevitably, there's a certain commodification of you, which is just inevitable. You become a part of this, this overall enterprise of, of selling films, and you become a part of that draw. So, so there's the you, the human being who's an artist and a person and whatever. And then there's sort of the, the known um, artist or this figure that people project all kinds of things onto, be, maybe because of what they read in the characters you're creating or maybe because of what they project into uh, you, know, you as, a, as an artist. But it's pretty unclipped from the reality of you as a person being. You know? and, and I think that you know, there's no manual for this stuff. There are people who are very wise, and if you're lucky, you run into some of them, and they give you tips to how to manage it. But, but ultimately, you've got to learn, I think, to anchor yourself. For, for psychological health, you've got to learn to distinguish between the two things. Obviously, the record show so far, you've done a very good job of doing that. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I remember, um, I don't know if it was Mel Brooks or someone said, like, you know, there's, there's like five... There's five phases in the career of every actor, like who is Edward Norton, maybe Edward Norton, get me Edward Norton, you know, maybe a younger Edward Norton, and who is Edward Norton? Like, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm probably somewhere on the, in the second half of that already, as far as I know. So I, I think, like, uh, you know, I always try to, I think that and, and maybe Dorothy Parker's line, like, uh, scratch an actor, you'll find an actress. Are, are like the those, those are like the things I try to keep in my head, you know, because I I, I you, you don't want to get too puffed up a sense of yourself, um, be, because then you know um, it can only it can only lead to a deflation at some point. What happens around the Norton household when your wife reads uh, Edward Norton new sex symbol? Uh, ladies <laughs> it, all over. it hasn't said new in front of it for for quite a few years. So, uh, but um, I'm very fortunate in many dimensions of my life to have partners, people, friends, family, loved ones who are, are also um, uh, incredibly accomplished, smart, um, emotionally grounded people, in many cases more so even than me. And I think people learn to deal with it the same way you learn to deal with it and, and see through it, you know, see through the, the, the sort of... Um, the insubstantial parts of it, and and I, sometimes I used to say like being well known is like having a manageable disease. Um, you you just kind of learn to to cope. It's like having diabetes. You 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 you, you, 
if you're lucky, you just take your shots and you know you kind of learn to manage it. Other times, I've thought it's like being a, a a gorgeous woman. You know what I mean? It's like people come at you for all the wrong reasons, but you learn to you you learn to just kind of manage it and and you, you know you deal with it. Well, but you make a good point. But you have to be at least half smart and very very lucky. Yeah. To, yeah, well, I mean, to, to hold it off, to keep it at bay. I mean, there, there are artists who've come before me who I took huge inspiration from their work itself, but then also from the way they managed right. the experience and, and not only didn't diminish their, the effectiveness of their work, they probably enhanced it you know, by, by practicing restraint, practicing a certain amount of um, class, if you want to call it that, but, but also just intelligence about the way they managed all that, they, they retained, I think, an extra punch as artists. And for you, name me a couple of those people. Well, I wasn't joking. I mean, I, I know it sounds like a funny thing to say because he's not an actor, but Bob Dylan, like, you know, like if you, if you watch Scorsese's documentary about him, No Direction Home. The stars, they're just pretending to hide. To me, that's like one of the great. That, that's like Joyce almost. It's like portrait of the artist as a young man. I, I've never seen. I've never seen a greater portrait of an of an of an artist at an an improbably young age somehow grasping that to let all of that overtake him was going to cr be corrosive to everything that he had to offer and just staring it down. You know, to see him when he's 21, 22 years old. Looking it squarely in the face and just saying, "I'm, you know, I'm not going to tell you what it's all about. I'm not, don't, don't, you know, I'm not going to. I'm not. I, I, I did the stuff. You, you figure it out. You know what I mean? Like, or, or people saying you're the voice of your generation, and him just saying that's not anything I can relate to. It's, it's, it's amazing, actually, to me. I, I watch it. I'm 44. I, I'm still amazed watching that film. That, that somehow that guy at that tender young age was able. And by the way, at a phase in our culture when celebrity was very new, that, that kind of celebrity was new. We weren't quite as pop a culture as we are now, and I think you just look at it and go, how did he know? You know how did he have the, the centeredness, the, the, the kind of personal density to, to resist? You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Edward Norton. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest is Edward Norton. My baby's not much for sports, like running around tennis courts. I must say I'm glad. Now in Hollywood for 18 years, Edward Norton is known for his ability to demonstrate tremendous range as an actor even leading musical medleys like this one in Woody Allen's romantic comedy, Everyone Says I Love You. If you hold out on me in any way, I walk. He has teamed up with some of the greatest actors of our generation, like Robert De Niro in The Score. Don't put me on the sideline when it's time to collect. Don't do it. He'll be a 38-year-old punked-out ex-con. And he's worked alongside some of the best storytellers in the business, like Spike Lee and... The 25th Hour. In that film, Norton won praise for his thoughtful performance of a drug dealer reevaluating his life 24 hours before beginning a prison sentence. 
I don't know, Pop. There was a bunch of them. You got some good shots in? Yeah, I got some good shots in. Edward Norton's latest performance can be seen on the big screen in the movie The Grand Budapest Hotel. Ah, Inspector Hank. By order of the Commissioner of Police, Zabroka Province, I hereby place you under arrest for the murder of Madame Celine Villeneuve de Goffin Taxis. I knew there was something. This is the second time Norton has signed up to work with director Wes Anderson in one of Anderson's star-studded ensembles. Hey! In what role did you have the most fun and or felt you learned the most? Mm. I mean, I've, I've had a lot of fun with a lot of roles. I mean, anytime you're learning a skill set, I mean, I, I mean a tactile skill set, it's fun. I mean, it's, it's fun to hang out with Johnny Chan and the greats of like the poker the world and and do these long, long, long coaching sessions with make great, you a better poker player. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, <laughs> that's just fun. That's just pure fun. Um, but so you know, making a making a comedy with Danny DeVito and Robin Williams and John Stewart and Catherine Keener. That's fun too. You know, that's just that's one kind of fun. Go out there and hook a horn. Thanks. Hey, it's me great pleasure to oh, introduce be. our very special guest, Smoochie the Rhino. Hello, New Jersey. And then there, there's a different kind of fun in the sense that, like, making films like American History X or Fight Club or the 25th Hour, you know, the, the, there's some things that are fun because, you know, I, I, grew up, I grew up on a certain kind of film. There were, there were certain kind of films that just rocked my world, you know, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing or, you know, R Raging Bull or... There's certain films that you see that when you're young and you realize this is something entirely different from a casual entertainment. This is a this is like a mind expanding experience. This is a, a this is shifting my view of the world or this is this is this is making me feel like someone understands the way I feel about life. You know, I mean you can feel that way from a Bruce Springsteen song or you can feel that way from from watching a film. And I think that when you get into making films if you were affected by films like that, you, you, you know, you dream, your aspiration is to make one of those. Are we gonna stand on the sidelines, quietly standing there while our country gets raped? Oh, are we gonna ante up and do something about it? Oh, yeah. yeah! You're goddamn right we are. Sometimes you make things that are hard. The, the, make, the doing of them is hard. Making American History X was really hard. It was a guerrilla kind of experience. You're too young to train here. End of story. Now quit wasting our time. Get Ma making Fight Club was hard just because it was a, it was a very technically challenging, long film. But it was great, great fun. The gun, the bombs, the revolution has got something to do with a girl named Marla Singer. Sometimes you get a sensation in the midst of doing something that we're making this for us. This is going to be for our friends, for our, for the people our age. We're still men. Yes, we're men. We're on something here that feels like, you know, generational, like The Graduate or something. You know what I mean? Like, that maybe our parents won't even understand, but that our friends will, and, and, will, and they will love it for that. And, and I think when you get, you, you could work 50 years in the movies and make 80 films, and I think if you, if you get to do a, a couple 
of them that that become real touchstones like that. You're, you're, it's, you're very fortunate, you know? And I, I feel like I've gotten, I've, I've been very, very lucky in terms of getting to have a few of those kinds of experiences where, where even in the doing of it, we sort of had that sensation that this is, this is something that the people of our, our generation are going to really relate to. The last film I made as an actor, I had as much fun of a, as I've ever had making a film. It's probably the 30th film I've made, and I, I had as much fun in the doing of it as I've had on any film I've worked on. And it was with this director, Alejandro Iñárritu, who, who's a terrific filmmaker. And, but w the way he approached the making, the actual making of the and film. And that film was? It's called Birdman. Right. It'll, it'll come out uh, later this year. It was as inventive and original an approach to making a film as I've ever been involved with. I've been doing this for 18 years. I, I've never gone through the process of making a film that was this unique, and it was, it was electrifying. Talk to me about fame, drama, celebrity, uh, philanthropy. Uh, how have each of those changed in the way they influence our society? Um, it's interesting. I don't know. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard. Like, you, on the one hand, you say, like, oh, you know, we're a very fame-saturated culture, partly because media, information technology has made things so instant and so pervasive. But, you know, is anybody today more famous than Frank Sinatra was, you know, or more famous than Charlie Chaplin was? I'm not... I'm, I'm not sure they are. I, I think it's very hard to sit in the moment that you're in and comment on the, you know, the phase we're in in terms of celebrity, things like that. I, I certainly think that there's, just, there's no question that we're, we're in this era where the way people absorb uh, all information, including creativity, you know, the, the, the best of creative product and the thinnest, it's it's so different. It's tr it's transforming. You know, I mean, within the context of storytelling, film was ascendant in the 20th century, and and was the the you know the became the dominant global cultural form of storytelling, and and I think that's really shifting. The notion that that a theatrical release of whatever you make is the is the is the be all and end all and the must have and the pinnacle experience, and anything else is a diminishment. It has is effectively been blown apart, you know. Effectively um, blown apart by what the development of things like Netflix and HBO yeah. and Showtime. Absolutely. I mean, the middle class audience today has a 55-inch plasma screen uh, with no one munching popcorn behind them and no bed bugs in the seats. You know, who's to say that's not a preferable way to see a film? <laughs> it, it may well be. You know, when when New York is in a polar vortex and there are bed bugs in the theater seats. And, you know, there's a rat running across the aisle, which happened to me at the Union Square multiplex recently. It's like, you know, who's, who's to say that, that people um, should want to, that, that that's the only way for someone to see your movie, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. Do you think that movies and film in general, and I'll include television programs in this, are still the great storytellers or is music the great storyteller. I think they're they're close cousins, but the truth is is that great great music is often a storytelling experience. I mean, Bruce Springsteen is nothing if not a storyteller. He's the great epic poet of you know the American working class. Uh, he 
you know, or, you know, Radiohead's, a record like OK Computer is this enormous, it's like the wall of our generation. It's this enormous narrative landscape uh, about an existential feeling, and it's, it's got a, there's a story in it. Jay-Z's a storyteller, for sure, all the way, and I think, and I think there's even a cinematic quality to, to a lot of his music, and I think, you know, Joseph Campbell would say it's all storytelling. Right. But it, 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 it takes different forms, I think. Um, well, this has always been the case to a degree, but even with classical music, for example, Tchaikovsky's 1812 sure. over is a great story. Of course, yeah. I think the boundaries are breaking down between music, film, video, TV, cable. It's all, it's all becoming, um, technologically, we're able to present it to ourselves in very dynamic ways. And I think it's, it's irrelevant um, how it's coming to people. I do still think that there's something magical about people getting together to watch a story. I think that goes back, you know, whether it's a concert or in a movie theater, you know, I think pe people literally physically gathering has something primal in it. I think yes, there's people once long ago gather around the campfire. Yeah, here, for sure. The storytellers. But I think that um, to me, you know, there's sort of, there's, there's the things we go to just for entertainment. But then there's kind of, if, if there's a higher purpose to it all, that I think all of us as an audience, we're always going to it, just like we go to sports games hoping for that great game. Right. You know, you, we, we wade through a lot of TV and a lot of movies and a lot of music because we're, we're, we're in the hunt for something. You know, we're not just trying to distract ourselves. We're kind of, whether we know it or not, we're in the hunt for something. We're in the hunt for that feeling of like, like penetration, you know. We're in the hunt for a search of meaning. It's a search meaning. for meaning. Yeah. Purpose of life. Well, I want to raise something that may be something of a risk. Uh, I've interviewed Oliver Stone, and he made uh, a point that keeps coming back to me to pick up and examine it. I wonder if you'd examine it. He said that the dramatists, uh, whether they're the ancient Greeks or Romans or present day, those who now work in film, they're companions to the historians. I know you majored in history, mm -hmm. not. and do you agree with this point that the dramatists can sometimes capture the essence of a people in times every bit as well as the historian? Yeah, I, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think that's that's that idea of, of the zeitgeist. Yeah, definitely. That you're right. I think that a distillation sometimes you can distillate, di distill, or crystallize something. Um, you know. Uh, I think that when, when people look at a film like Fight Club, which objectively has become a touchstone for many young people, True. it's not because, how would you write that history anyway? How, how would you write the history of how a world of sameness, of franchising, mm -hmm. has impacted people emotionally? What, what would that, how would that take the form of of a, of a history book. It would be very, very difficult to do it. Like so many others, I had become a slave to the Ikea nesting instinct. Uh, yes, I'd like to order the Erica Picari dust ruffles. But what works about that film for people is that they see themselves in that guy's drone-like existence, in the, the loss of the sense of authenticity, of uniqueness, of individuation, you know what I mean? And it's comical, it's fun, it, the film is funny, so, it's, so people are able to look at it and see themselves and laugh kind of in recognition at their own condition.
And, and I think that, you know, that, that's that distillation that you're talking about. It's like we're, we're taking something that's a cultural experience that's very hard to just sort of clinically write about and sort of saying, this is where we are, this is who we've become. I think that's what, that's the best you can possibly hope to achieve is that you, is that you can take the measure of the time you're living in and, and distill a little bit of what the experience was like so that it becomes actually a part, not necessarily of our historical record, but of our emotional history. Edward Norton is a notable environmentalist, actively involved in conservation efforts in places like Kenya. But he is also at the forefront of a philanthropic revolution going on in this country. Philanthropy is changing radically. You know, I think even in the, in the last hundred years, we've gone from almost like the robber baron version of philanthropy, the Carnegie Rockefeller definition of philanthropy, to the rise of the nonprofit sector. You know, the the evolution of this entire um, sector in our society that's not, you know, for-profit enterprise and it's not government. Um, and it's wrong to even call it charity because it's not charity in the traditional sense. It's the it's the nonprofit um, social impact, the mission-driven uh, you know side of of our lives. This this is having massive massive ramifications. I think it's the nonprofit sector has risen to address this gulf between what the free market addresses and what government can address, and it's been massively significant. But but even that over the last you know, half century has been largely funded in, a, in what you'd call like an 80-20 relationship between you know, big check writers and then gr the grassroots. And I think what we're seeing heading into the 21st century is the real possibility that the grassroots, the power of the crowd and, and the, the speed and the effectiveness with which people can mobilize in large groups is going to start possibly even eclipsing the big foundation style of philanthropy. Norton's website, CrowdRise, is a platform that both individuals and big organizations are using to generate online donations. From UNICEF raising money for typhoon relief in the Philippines, to young couples who want their wedding gifts to be donations to favorite charities. Norton was in part inspired to create CrowdRise after the phenomenal success of Barack Obama's 2008 presidential fundraising website, where millions of people contributed donations in small increments that added up to sizable amounts. Obama's first campaign, which had an, things that occurred within it that we observed had a huge impact on our sort of game theory about CrowdRise, right. the more significant detail of the success of that campaign in raising money through millions of small donors. To me, it was not even the number of people who donated under $100. It was the number of those people who used those little My Barack Obama web pages to engage their friends and family and raised 10 times their own personal capacity. It was the kid who donated 25 but raised 250. The new small-scale bundler, if you will. The, the leverage of the peer-to-peer -peer fundraising, that is very core to what we're trying to do at CrowdRise, which is create leverage. If I'm interested in raising funds, 
but I don't quite know how to do it. Do I come to you? Do I come to the site? How does it work? Yes, our site is almost like a shopping list of ideas. If, if when you show up on it, it sort of says, look, um, do you want to turn your birthday into a fundraiser? Do you want to turn your wedding into a fundraiser? Do you want to, are you going to run a marathon? It's an idea bank, if you want, for a person who said, I care about something, I want to do something about it, I'm not sure how I want to do it. If you show up on CrowdRise within 30 seconds, we will help you filter down into a notion for how you might affect what you want to affect. If you come to it with an idea already, it is 100% the best possible place you can come to get a pre-built, templated uh, set of tools for pushing that out into the world. This year, the ING New York City Marathon has partnered with my company, CrowdRise, to make it incredibly easy for every single runner in the race with one click to sign up and help raise money for one of these charities. By sometime early this year, over $100 million will have been raised on the site, mostly in donations. The average donation on the site is still under $100. It's around $90. So you think about the fact we're, you know, we've now raised over $100 million, and, and I think we're on our way to doing that annually, um, if not more. And I think the thing that's remarkable about it is we're, we're starting to hit levels of impact that one associates with foundations at the level of the Ford Foundation and the Gates Foundation. And that, that to me is like, you know, very exciting. I think, I think you, it's what's in our name, Crowd Rise. But we, we were really interested in this idea that the power of people assembling together can actually exceed even the capacity of huge, you know, uh, sort of macro philanthropy. And within that, one of the things that's really exciting is there's a massive cost efficiency in going this way. You know, these very cost inefficient mechanisms that drive us all crazy, direct mailing, rubber chicken dinners, all of these things that have terrible cost to net ratios. You know, online fundraising with credit card fees included usually comes in at under 7%. So you're talking about you know taking helping organizations move their their fundraising from you know 20 25 percent development cost profiles to under seven percent. That's a that's a revolution. You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Edward Norton. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest is Edward Norton. When it comes to social activism, Edward Norton has it in his blood. He comes from a family of some of the most well-known voices in the charitable world. His father, Ed Norton, once a federal prosecutor in the Carter administration, is also a distinguished conservationist. And his grandfather, James Rouse, was a pioneer in the world of urban renewal and modern philanthropy. I'm very lucky. I have this life as an artist and as a creative person that doesn't have to um, fill up 24-7 or even every month of the year. And it leaves me with time to engage in other things that I've also been interested in for a long time and use a different half of my brain. We've got some very fundamental issues that we need to confront that you could argue supersede almost anything else that's happening um, in the world. And, and it certainly, I think, for my generation, are, are the pressing questions of this era, in, in particular environmental, ecological sustainability. And I think 
that, you know, that there's no question in my mind that that in a thousand years will be the basis on which we're assessed as a generation more than the movies we made, more than the sports we played, or the, you know, minor political squabbling we were doing. I'm really interested in that. I think it's, um, it's sort of, to me, the heart of the issues of the, of the day. And I think um, finding ways to engage with that is something I feel pretty passionate about. From where does this come? What, where is the, the wellspring of this? Because, look, there are a lot of people, a lot of celebrities who lend their names to charities, and that's a good thing. But yours is something deeper, more longer lasting than that, and it had an earlier beginning. But where does that come? Everything I know about uh, the environmental movement, if you want to call it that, conservation, ecosystem dynamics, all of that comes from my father. He's, um, you know, one of the leading uh, conservation strategists and and um, advocates of his generation. And I think, you know, I grew up in a household um, of people thinking deep and hard and doing very significant things within the field of environmental conservation. My grandfather, who was a guy, uh, I, I am not, I'm not sure, but I, you might have even interviewed my grandfather. His name was James Rouse. I don't think I ever interviewed him, but I certainly knew of his work. He was on the cover of Time magazine. Right. He was well ahead of his time in thinking about urban renewal. Absolutely, right. One of Rouse's most notable accomplishments was Columbia, Maryland. That's a community he planned and designed in the mid-1960s from thousands of acres of farmland. The goal was to create a racially integrated city with good social services and affordable housing. You know, President Clinton um, gave my grandfather the Medal of Freedom uh, for his work specifically to confront the, um, the challenge of, of the affordable housing crisis in America and um, in, in addition to his work as a commercial real estate developer and an urban planner um, in which he was arguably one of the most progressive thinkers about urban planning and urban renewal uh, of his generation he he dedicated most of his the last 30 years of his life to the to the specific question of addressing the shortage of affordable housing in America and figuring out ways to bridge the gulf between the private sector marketplace and government uh, support for housing. Um, Affordable housing still a question very much with us. Maybe more so than ever, you know. Uh, uh, I mean, we have, you know, 45 million Americans living in poverty. 12 million of those are children. Um, another 20 to 30 million Americans, arguably, who are living housing insecure. So you've got a sizable percentage of the American population living in a situation in which they have a fundamental uh, lack of fit and affordable housing. My grandfather, he founded um, the foundation called Enterprise Community Partners, which is now um, invested over $12 billion in affordable housing development and is one of the largest nonprofit developers of affordable housing and in the country. And you're still involved in that? I'm still on the board of Enterprise. So all, all of that's a fairly you know, uh, long-winded way of saying that m my grandfather, who was um, himself a very significant philanthropist, not in the sense of giving away money, but in the sense of 
devoting his time and energies and expertise to addressing this kind of great social crisis. And my dad, as an environmental advocate, I think my engagement with, with those agendas is completely rooted in, in them, you know, growing up in a household of people who were debating and taking on these, these challenges. Um, and your mother, where did she fit in? She, she was a, she, yeah, she, my mother was a, a, a public school teacher for 40 years and then worked at a, at a foundation in Baltimore um, on education reform in Baltimore. I think when you talk about these things, you know, sometimes I, I hear it from the outside and it's like, oh, well, you know, you, 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 it sounds almost like an inherited sense of obligation, but it's really not. Like, you, you know, I would say, um, apart from my artistic life, which I, get enormous pleasure out of and it's a lot of fun um, you know making movies making theater it, this is all very fun but but the truth is like a lot of what I enjoy most in the world um, doing has has flowed to me out of my these other interests you know my my interest in environmental issues and things like that has taken me all over the world um, you know my love of being in the outdoors of scuba diving of surfing of you know, flying, all, almost everything I do recreationally for fun is, is, has been an outgrowth of growing up, you know, with my dad hiking us off into remote and exciting places and meeting people who I thought were dynamic and adventurous and stuff like that. A lot of the people that I've met in my life who have inspired me the most have been people working in those fields. And a lot of my most thrilling experiences as a, as a person, not as an artist, but as a person, have flowed out of my work and time spent rolling around in, in those issues. So it's, it's not really, um, f the thing about philanthropy is we have a tendency to think of it as like people giving money, you know, or giving of their time and stuff like that. I, I look at it very much as the things I do that feed the, the most back to me, you know. Did you come to this interview saying in your mind, well, I don't know where it's going to go, I don't know how it's going to go, but there's one thing I really want to get across. If you had such a thing and we haven't touched on it, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about it. Oh, thank you. It. No, that's right. I mean, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm 44, so I, my life sort of straddles this epic shift in media. But literally, I grew up with my, my, my family watched the CBS Evening News around the well, things, and my mother was, my mother was, uh, my mother and father, my, they were Walter Cronkite lovers, and so they, they stayed with, you know, they. Oh, God they, bless that, you. that was our that was our news channel. So um, to me, it's just a pleasure to get to chat with you. I feel like it's it's. I didn't get to sit on Johnny Carson's couch. You know, I missed that by like this much. So it's a, it's a pleasure just to talk about anything. I think, um, you know, to me, I think that we're at an interesting inflection with CrowdRise right now, where we're gonna this this year for the first time, we're gonna expand it um, to where. You know, if you have a, a friend in dire need, if you have a family member who's got medical expenses um, that they can't reach, that you'll be, you'll be able to um, reach out to build to raise support for people on an on a one-to-one -one basis, as opposed to just through five hundred one c three charities. And that's where you're going with that. Yeah, and that's exciting to us. I think we we want people to know about that. We want we want people to know that um, this notion of social networking is is maturing with incredible rapidity. And Facebook sort of broke the door open, but very quickly I think people realized that a socializing platform is not the best place to do everything. Right. So for instance, you see specialization, you see LinkedIn has become the forum for people to conduct serious business networking. 
I think that CrowdRise is emerging as the platform on which people will do their peer-to-peer -peer fundraising to support the causes that they care about, and we hope to support the people that they care about. And I think it's an exciting moment. I think we, we were never sure exactly how big it would grow or how fast it would grow, but I think um, we're, we're, we're reaching that kind of tipping point where I think it's going to take its place alongside those other ones as, as one of the kind of default uh, recognized best places to do something. And that's, that's exciting. My benchmark's always been Paul Newman because I, I figured, um, you know, he went out and started making salad dressing. Right. And uh, it turned into this, you know, I, I sometimes think about him because I, I was lucky enough to meet him. He saw me in a play once and he came back and I got to have a drink with him after. And he, he was one, one of my idols, like any actor, but not just because, not just because he was one of the great performers, but as a human being, he, you talk about fame and how do you use it positively. Paul Newman has to be in the upper, upper, upper ranks, I think, of people who ever turned the, the ephemeral collateral of celebrity into something massively positive. Well, you know, he creation of food, the market for Paul Newman food, turned out great sums of money. Hundreds of millions of dollars for, for charity. For charity, including helping uh, disadvantaged children. Hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, like, I mean, all because he had the impulse to say, look, I'm going to take this silly thing, this thing that's somewhat silly, and I'm going to turn it into something that's not silly. I'm going to leverage it in a way that if Paul Newman had been the most successful movie actor in history and given every penny that he ever made to charity, he couldn't have scratched the surface of the amount of resources he has generated for charity. And that's hugely inspiring to me. You know, so I, in my mind, I have this, I, I, I look at Newman's own and I think, you know, if CrowdRise can ever, if we can ever hit that level, if we can get into the hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, raised out, that, that'll make me pretty happy. Edward Norton, thank you. It's such an honor to get, oh, uh, listen, to have a conversation with you. Thanks pleasure. a lot. And that's the big interview for tonight. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or send your comments to viewer at access.tv. And that wraps up another captivating episode of Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And of course, leave us a review and tell a friend. Thank you for joining us for Dan Rather's The Big Interview, where music and conversation unite.